0: I'm Michael Hayward, host of Coach on Your Shoulder, a podcast where we speak with executive coaches about their practice and how they help their clients solve challenges like yours. This week, we have the first of three conversations with Emily Doyle of the Surefire Way. Emily brings a chief human resource officer's perspective to her coaching practice, so she sees the human impact side of our behaviors very clearly. Okay, so Emily, you had a long career and were quite successful in HR. What made you want to become a coach? What was the thing that uh, tipped you from, I think I'll continue my career in HR over to, I think I'll help other people.
1: I think there were a lot of aha moments that I was witnessing as an HR professional when I would consult internally, if you will, I'm running an HR function and there's a lot entailed from an operational perspective. But a lot of times my main focus was on building culture, organizational development, more of the strategic side of creating an environment where people want to work. And that entailed a lot. Of conversation and a lot of coaching. And after 20 some years, I started to carve out more and more time where I was having that kind of impact on individuals. And then eventually said, I want to launch and go out on my own and just focus on these types of conversations because of the impact, frankly, to see someone get to the bottom of a conflict or reveal a blind spot that was holding someone back, that was becoming really the magic of the role as opposed to how do we get people paid and promoted and things of that nature. It was more the coaching conversations.
0: Right. Less blocking and tackling. Exactly. Okay. So your coaching practice is called Surefire Way. How did you come to Surefire Way and what does that mean? What's your secret sauce?
1: If people are going to work with me, they need to know that it's going to be valuable for them. And throughout my career, one of the top compliments that I get is you're not like most HR people. You have a way with words. You seem to be able to make the complex very simple. And I really chewed on that. I was thinking about what's the value of somebody working with me. Mm-hmm. And I came up with if they work with me, they're certain to succeed. So I came up with surefire, surefire way. Okay. So, there, the, the name was born, but it started with, why would somebody want to work with me?
0: Mm-hmm. And tell me a little bit about the experience of working with you. How do you get started with people?
1: Because I operate under the premise of I'm not like most HR people or what people have experienced of HR, I really like to focus on the business. Help me understand what's going on in the business. What are the needs of the business? What's the strategy of the business? What are the roles within the business to build context around what's going on in the environment? That helps me then uncover what are the pain points? What are the gaps? What's getting in your way? Which sometimes leads into a conversation of what's getting in the organization's way versus what's getting in your personal way. And sometimes that discovery can determine whether we're going to focus on business coaching or Mm -hmm. one-to-one coaching, or a combination of both. You and I have talked about how do you balance those two?
0: Yeah, absolutely. What's your sweet spot? What kind of companies do you work with? What kind of executives?
1: My sweet spot is definitely smaller organizations. I would say sub 200 employees. I've worked for the big multinational, in my case, pharmaceutical and life sciences. And I always used to say, I personally like to be able to lock eyes with everyone and know their story. So the smaller, the better, which means taking a very hands on approach from an HR perspective, because in an organization of 200 or less people, you can't build some massive HR department. You have to have a combination of hands-on and strategic. So that's the size of the organization. And usually in that context, working with a small group of senior leaders, five to eight people.
0: Do you tend to work with the whole group or one person brings you in?
1: It could be one of two ways. I can either come in by partnering with the head of HR Mm -hmm. who says, hey, we need some team building across the executive team or it could be the CEO directly. It's usually one of those two individuals. The CEO wants individual coaching or may even wanna talk through coaching needs on their team. And then the, the opposite for the head of HR bringing in to either coach the CEO or some executive on the team.
0: Do you feel like organizations reach out for coaching support when they're in the midst of some sort of organizational trauma or crisis? Or do you feel it's more likely that these are the enlightened few that say, Mm -hmm. I want to elevate the performance of my team. We're good, but we can be better.
1: My experience so far, I would say both as an internal coach working in HR as well as now an external coach, is we've got a problem that needs to be fixed.
0: Right. So usually speed is of the essence when there's a problem. That needs to be fixed. In our conversation uh, preparing for this podcast, we talked about the fact that leaders often don't recognize right up front where the true problem is. They may say Mm -hmm. that there's something they want to work on, but with some probing, we discover fairly quickly that there's more to it than that. And we have to get under the hood and figure out the true source of the problem. How do you get to that true source of the problem? In a way that satisfies both being able to do something constructive for the organization and also satisfying their need to solve things quickly.
1: I think first and foremost, acknowledging that it's never a perfect process Mm -hmm. because we're human beings. So let's say a CEO raises as what he or she believes is going on and what is the pain point. There's probably some truth, but it's incumbent upon us to get under the hood. And how you get under the hood can vary. What I like to do is have a couple of relatively extensive conversations with the individual and get their perspective and really comb through what kind of feedback have you gotten, what kind of reactions have you gotten, what are you working on right now, etc, but then to initiate a 360 because the idea of conducting a 360 assessment, even though I believe inherently, even with a 360 assessment, you're going to have people holding back and resistant a bit to the process. You're going to get some gems that would potentially be a blind spot for the individual that you're coaching. Mm
0: Do you have an example of, Uh, The aha moment when you help somebody pull back the covers and say, that's actually what's going on here. This is what we need to work on.
1: Yeah. So there have been so many. One that comes to mind was I've worked in life sciences and healthcare for my whole career. And maybe this is across other industries, but something I notice at the senior leader level is there's a lot of friendly jabbing that goes on to keep things light. A lot of times executive teams will use humor and like picking on people a little bit, hazing people in the executive team. And I had a leader who had perceived that he took that jabbing a little bit too far. So he had internalized. I think maybe I come across as a little disrespectful at times because mm-hmm. I use humor and I poke fun at people. And I, I was apprehensive about that because it felt a little bit too easy. hmm Sometimes people raise problems that they find easy to solve. So right. I was apprehensive if that's what the actual problem was. And come to find out, I did a, this 360 with his team. And one of the trending themes that came out was that like clockwork, when people had one-to-ones with this person, he would do basically one of three things. He would email right before the one-on-one was about to happen and say, do we really need to meet today? Hmm. He would just move the appointment to later in the day. Or the third thing he would do would be in the actual one-to-one meeting with people, he would be checking his phone on his email or basically starting the meeting by saying, I've only got a half an hour when the meeting was an hour. Hmm. So. All of these variations of his lack of time management really was surfacing as this guy doesn't respect me. He doesn't respect my time. He doesn't respect w- what I have to bring forward. He doesn't okay. respect my ideas. And that's what we ended up uncovering and working on, which isn't that hard to change, right? You, you can work on those things. Had nothing to do with the humor and the jabs, and mm-hmm. the, it had to do with. Basic time management and being present for people.
0: I guess the good news is, if it came down to time management and not fundamental disrespect for other people that were working, that's easier to solve for that.
1: Absolutely, and you take small steps towards being perceived as respectful. Mm. And I, I do think that there was a respect there, but the the top executives sometimes their calendar is the most important. And we know that's not the case. That can, that can be detrimental to have that mindset as a CEO.
0: Yeah. When you tell that story, it occurs to me that the blind spot is he didn't realize the impact that was having on people around him. So he could see the symptom. He guessed at what the cause was, got the cause wrong. And if they hadn't asked you to uh, work with him at that point. His leadership would basically fall apart after a while, right? Because he'd start to have a turnover problem at the senior levels and he wouldn't understand why. He's like, my jokes aren't that funny. When we get to more senior roles, taking feedback becomes quite difficult too, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. And my experience with the senior level of leaders and CEOs is that people find it very hard to give them specific feedback. What happens is they've received feedback and they interpret it as meaning one thing, but it's actually something completely different. And a good example of that is I had a CEO, when I first met him, say, just so you know, I've been given feedback that I'm intimidating. And I said, okay. Mm talk to me about that? What was the basis of that? And he said, well, you know, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I never talk about myself. I need to share more. I need to be more vulnerable. I need to talk about my grandkids. And come to find out after a couple of months working with him and doing a 360 assessment with his team, it had nothing to do with people wanting to know about him personally. It had to do with these other behaviors at work, like cutting people off, interrupting people, running the room, if you will, and Mm -hmm. not welcoming other opinions into the room. And so that was very eye-opening for him. It it became a piece of feedback that was very specific for him, that he could now say, wait a minute, this has nothing to do with small talk. This has to do with how I behave in very specific situations.
0: So when you start working with somebody, There's always a debate about do you try to eliminate the negatives or do you accentuate the positives that a person displays that they have? What's the most productive way that you find to work with somebody to get them to start to make what are usually meaningful changes in their behavior?
1: As I mentioned earlier, I think identifying the real cause, Mm -hmm. right? And I'll go back to that example. Sometimes, it is truly peeling back an onion mm-hmm. because we started with the feedback that i had was that i'm disrespectful we went from it has nothing to do with your joking or your jabbing mm-hmm. it has to do with your time management but let's go down even further in that onion what's causing you to have time management challenges is it because you're trying to be all things to all people is it because you're having a hard time saying no or You're doing a great job saying yes, however you want to look at that, right? You really can't start to address it until you get down to what's at the root of that. And to answer your question, I think first and foremost, you, you really have to do the work to get down to what the root problem is. And then once you're at the root problem, hopefully you've done a good job at the beginning of the coaching process of contracting around being committed to getting after that behavior. And what does being committed towards changing that behavior look like? It means you're actually going to take action. You're going to put a plan in place. And it's helpful to revisit that initial commitment when you're in the coaching process because if you're not willing to take action both to leverage your strengths or to address your blind spots, Mm -hmm. nothing changes, right? What's the point of all this?
0: What's the tipping point? In your experience for a person between when you identify what it is that's going on mm-hmm. and then they recognize it, there's, oh, yeah, you're right. I am doing that. Well, what's mm-hmm. the tipping point that gets them to commit to actually change, Abe?
1: You know, my sense and my experience is that the negative impact has to be enough that it inspires the change. Right. So, if this person, if they're a senior leader and it's their ultimate goal is to have a different kind of impact, to get promoted to the next level, it has to be in their personal drive to decide Mm -hmm. this is truly holding me back. Just like any serious commitment that somebody makes in their life to change, it has to do with the pain of not changing, is worse than the change and the difficulty to change itself.
0: As you talk about it, I think of examples like, the people who make the lifestyle change only after they have the heart attack. Yeah, if you can see that there is an existential threat, that's usually enough to get mm-hmm. you going.
1: I I think that reinforces the idea that when you are working on behavior change, to check in on the impact and the wins, to keep it top of mind for your mm-hmm. client. That mm-hmm. okay, so you had that difficult conversation that you've been avoiding. What happened? Did did the world end? No, this had a positive impact. Mm -hmm. Reinforcing that change is happening because in the moment, it may not feel like the impact is great, but over the long haul, it may be.
0: Right. What's the best kind of accountability partner? Does the coach wind up being Mm -hmm. the accountability partner when you get together for your weekly or monthly call or whatever? Do you go through and say, okay, tell me about how you did with this and this or Are there better places for executives to partner up and say, I I need somebody to ride along with me to make sure I'm getting this stuff right?
1: It's a great question. I've had more success when the accountability partner is not me Mm -hmm. because I can't directly observe the change and I'm not sitting in the environment day in and day out. There's two likely sources. If it's a CEO A peer executive, a CFO or chief scientific officers, or someone of that nature who's involved in a lot of meetings with the CEO and also the executive assistant. Mm -hmm. So, the executive assistant is oftentimes seeing a lot of behind the scenes behaviors, especially if we're working on impact and how you go about the day to day. So, someone who's observing in the environment would be my call on that.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with you. I think there's, there's always risk, right? Or people will perceive a risk. If you ask somebody who's a direct report to you to watch you for weeks, like, yes. like in the, in the animal kingdom, that's not exactly the strategy <laughs> you want to put forward. But actually, I like the idea of an executive assistant because a superstar executive assistant works like a chief of staff, right? Sees everything, exactly. kind of controls everything, has a finger on the pulse and can see you in a way that nobody else is seeing you. So if your EA is up to that task, they'll hear it in a way that the CEO will never hear it.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Yeah. yeah. And
1: people are more comfortable giving feedback and showing their real emotion to the executive assistant.
0: Because that's not a person who wants your job typically.
1: That's right. right?
0: Unless you're Tony Stark and you give the job yeah. for EA.
1: <laughs> exactly. And you'd love to say the head of HR, but that really depends on the nature of the working relationship between
0: yeah. the CEO I mean, there, and the, There and the head could of always there. be somebody at the C level that mm-hmm. you can partner with, but it doesn't matter if it's CFO or CMO, whatever. It, it's rare that you're gonna find somebody that, that's not a risky relationship. Yeah. Yeah, you know, to be vulnerable in, especially but, early on.
1: Yeah. But your point of an accountability partner yeah. is huge. Because you don't have a coach on your shoulder every day. And there's got to be somebody who can say, you're hitting the mark or you're not. And this is why.
0: Okay, let's wrap it up here. That's a lot to cover. And there's a lot more to cover in our next conversation. So I'm looking forward to that. Thanks, Emily. You've been listening to Coach on Your Shoulder. I'm Michael Hayward. Coach on Your Shoulder is a weekly podcast that you can subscribe to at all the finest podcast outlets. Coach on Your Shoulder is co-produced by Melissa Simmons of Luminology. If you have questions about finding a coach or how you can get the most of a coaching relationship, drop us a line. We always love to hear from listeners like you.